0: Good morning. You know, it's incredible once kids transition from being basically bound to your arms to running around, how much they like to run away from you. Anyway. Uh, today, we're going to be going through Acts, a couple verses in Acts chapter six. And just to set the stage, imagine, imagine a person trying to single-handedly run an entire organization. Now, a small organization, yes, that, that'll probably work, right? Um, this person's trying to be the CEO and the receptionist, the scheduler, the decision maker, and they work tirelessly, stretching their time and energy thin. But as the company grows, what, what would happen to this person? Likely, the organization would stagnate, it would fail to grow, and eventually fall short of its potential. Uh, probably the, pers- the, the, the leader would hit massive burnout and massive financial failure in, in our economy. Um, the reality is that no one person can truly be a, a one-man band uh, if the goal is growth. As an organization expands, needs inevitably arise that a single person cannot meet alone. The wisdom to recognize these needs and the readiness to get help when necessary are crucial for success. Today we're going to be looking at Acts 6, 1 through 7. And this passage will take us to the Jerusalem church approximately one to five years after the events of Pentecost. Pentecost. Luke, being the wonderful author he is, uh, transitions us with the first couple words. Now in these days, which basically, in Luke, uh, in Luke's mentality, that means sometime between then and then and then this other thing. Very precise. Great doctor, right? No sense of time. They're always late for appointments. Anyway, <laughs> um, so, the, so approximately one to five years after the events of Pentecost. So the first couple chapters, we've seen the church's battles with its adversaries and its remarkable and providential victories uh, when it first formed. And now we get to see how it addresses internal administrative challenges. A church, by the way, is not an organization per se, um, but let's see how it remains organize, uh, organized when conflict arises. Um, we're going to see actually a need for division of labor, which I think is, is an incredible concept, even, even in a small church like ours. So let's go ahead and read. So uh, open up in your Bibles or your tablets or your mental memory uh, of Acts chapter 1. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the Word of the Lord. Now let's talk about what the issue is here. If you know who the Hellenists and the Hebrews are, then, then you know, Sunday school gold star for you. Uh, the, the Hellenists are the Greek. Jews, the ones that grew up in the in 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 what we would call the dispersion, the Greek territories, everything that's not Israel. The the Jews recognized basically Jew and Gentile. And these people that grew up in these Gentile regions yet were Jewish were second class citizens. They weren't as important. Uh, they, they, they came from these surrounding areas and, and, and they've settled back in Israel. Now we don't know why it it could have been because of, uh, because of changes in Roman policy. It could have been because they, they came to Christ and they wanted to be centered around where the church was because at this point, the church was still singular. It wasn't, it wasn't a multiple. It was, you couldn't find the church in every single location. So these Hellenist widows, specifically, were coming to the daily distribution, and they were being neglected. The distribution could have been either a distribution of food or money. Uh, we know that the church did both. There was, uh, there, there was, if we understand church history correctly, there was a daily distribution of food and a weekly distribution of money. So this was probably of food, but it still could have been of money, because... I mean, the church wasn't composed of farmers, Why? so it would make sense that some of the money would get distributed. And if we go back a couple of chapters, we would see that even at the onset of the church, they would sell possessions and they would share the funds through some organized effort to make sure that all these people's needs were met. And in Jewish culture, there wasn't just the Hellenist problem, there was the widow problem. You had the, uh, in in Jewish culture, basically the most neglected people groups were the widows and the orphans. And so you had this this massive structure set up in the Old Testament for caring for widows and orphans. And then if you read the entire Old Testament, you see God charge the, the nation of Israel with sin. You've neglected the widows and the orphans. It's like when you have a kid that keeps doing the same naughty thing over and over again. Not that I would know anything about that. (laughs) And no matter how many times you tell them no, they keep going back. And then that proverb pops into your head as the dog returns to his vomit. So a fool to his folly. Israel was the fool. They kept neglecting the widows and the orphans. The church, however, they were good, man. They were taking care of the widows and the orphans. Well, except the Hellenist ones, of course. But they're okay. No, they're not. In Jewish culture, a a man made all the money and and the, the woman stayed at home and cared for the family. They were the most vulnerable. These could be young women. These could be old women. If we jump to the end of the New Testament, Paul actually sets a rule that if they're young enough to marry, man, let them marry again. If their husband dies... Let them marry. But if they're old and they're not able to get married again, then take care of them. But that's not where we are in this. In this, it's just the Hellenist widows. So there weren't any social programs within the nation of Israel or the Roman government in order to care for these people. So the church stepped up, right? God ordained it that the church would step in and, and provide for them. Acts 4.34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, just to just to set that stage again the hellenistic widows or the hellenistic jews were jews that grew up outside of the jewish region the the hebraic jews the hebrew jews that's that's very repetitive the hebraic jews would look at them as basically gentile so you have a majority of Hebraic Jews that are taking this daily distribution of something, and then the Hellenistic Jews are being left. They're being, they're, they're being left basically with the dregs. I used to help run a food ministry that, that we, we worked really hard to make sure that we did a count at the beginning so that we would know how much food we could give out, specifically meat. We would get all this, like, expiring meat, and we kept it in a big old freezer, and we would give it out to people. So if we had 112 people, 112 families represented, then we would make sure that we had enough meat to supply food for maybe a couple days at least for these people. But then you'd have to the people coming in at the end that were not part of that initial count. And we'd be scrambling back and forth to the freezer to see if we got anything left. But this was on purpose. This wasn't the, they're just showing up late. It's, it's, ah, you know what? Those Hellenistic, they can go do Gentile things. Let the, let the Hebrew, the Hebrew Christians be taken care of. It was discrimination is what it was. Now, if you were to open up some commentaries every once in a while, you hear that this is actually a false claim, (laughs) Um, that the the Hellenistic Jews were a minority, and as poor people always do, they wanted more and more and more, and so they were saying that the the Hebraic Jews were taken care of when they really, uh, uh, but they weren't when they really were, and really, honestly, that's just jumping into the weeds. There's, There's nothing in the text that indicates this. This seems to be an actual injustice. And I would argue too that the apostles apparently saw this important enough to deal with. So it seems like it was an actual real deal. So then we jump into verse two. We have, we have the apostles response. Uh, the 12 apostles gather either the entire congregation of the church, which, man, I can't even get a business meeting together for 25 people. Can you imagine 6,000 people gathering somewhere for a single meeting? I. I personally can't. And what's funny is Luke says and gathered the whole number of the disciples. Well, what does that even mean? That's the only time that that word is used in the entire book of Luke. So, I mean, maybe he's trying to indicate that they had like the elders of the smaller groups and congregations gather. Or maybe it was just the whole number of those that could attend. We don't really know. But we know this was a lot of people. So so the apostles gather together this whole number, this whole crowd, and they make this sentence, this statement, that can be really, really easily misunderstood. They say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Did they say it like that? I don't think so. The point here is not that serving tables is less than the preaching of the word of God. The point here is that the apostles knew that they only had so much time that they could devote and they were pretty stretched thin. And so, hey, you know what? Maybe maybe we can divide this labor up. Maybe we can get some help. So they gather the whole of the congregation and the congregation then brings forth these names that they then probably vote on, because hey, you know what, we're, 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 we're United States citizens and we love voting, and so they probably did too. No, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how they brought them. These names came up and everybody agreed, which, I mean, thinking of church meetings sounds miraculous. I mean, even on carpet color. Anyway, <laughs> but, they, but they all agree. But the apostles knew their role. They, they knew what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to preach the word of God. They were supposed to go to these people. And frankly, they can't do everything. They can't be both the church janitor and also the pastor at the exact same time. Knowing our roles as leaders in a church is a safeguard for burnout. It's a safeguard against people pleasing. And it's a safeguard against being everyone's complaint box. I don't know if you've ever done this or been around a pastor who you're having a conversation with the pastor and somebody comes up, pastor, I've got a complaint. The women's restroom doesn't have enough toilet paper. What is he supposed to do? Okay, Uh, can you maybe tell someone that can help? (laughs) Or maybe look under the cupboard? Uh, That's where we usually keep it. Or, or you're standing and talking to the pastor, or maybe standing nearby and someone comes up and you, you know what, I've got a really big problem with the worship service. There's not enough organ. Actually, there's not enough cowbell. That'll, that'll hit basically anybody that knows Saturday Night Live. Anyway, <laughs> but there's some complaint, some inane complaint. What's a pastor to do? I was once with a pastor who his response was, well, it sounds like you've got a new ministry that you need to start up, the cowbell ministry. Anyway, but, (laughs) but, but he, you know, people would say, man, you know, we just don't have enough uh, workers in Sunday school. And he'd say, oh, so can I count your name as a volunteer then? (laughs) And that was his response to everything. And honestly, it weeded out almost everybody. Oh, no, I'm just, I'm just making a comment. But he knew his role. What's he supposed to do? Clone himself? Was have, have, his, have his clone go in the, the children's room and start serving there? No. There's a common problem within churches where pastors become that person in charge who can fix my problem, whatever the problem is. When there's actually a really biblical manner to solve disputes. If you've got a problem within yourselves, turn to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, read it like five times, and then go through that process. The easiest way to sinfully destroy a pastor is to complain to him about everything and never be part of the solution. And what you hear often is, ah, you know, I was part of the solution 30 years ago. I shouldn't have to do it again. Show me that in the Bible. The apostles knew here that their role was prayer and ministry of the word. They knew it. And that was by God's grace. They knew that that was their role. They knew that was what they had to do. They were, they, they were shepherds. I mean, you can read First and Second Peter and you, you can know, like, man, this dude's heart is tender and it, he cares for people. I can imagine when Peter heard this, he was like, well, I'll go show up right now. I'll go fix this problem. But by God's grace, for whatever reason, the apostles were able to decide, we need to raise up people. We, we need to have people be chosen to deal with this. They looked, they investigated and determined that this was a problem that needed to be solved. They led this congregation to gather for a particular purpose, and they acted on a plan together to get men who were able to solve this issue. Listen, I know pastors who have been late to start service because they are actually changing the toilet paper rolls in the restrooms, I've known pastors who are late to service because they had to go to the bathroom because they were too busy being everyone's complaint box before service. Pastors and other elders should not be expected to cater to all the physical needs in a congregation unless you expect that the church will become a social welfare clinic. That's, That's the one surefire way to transform a church into that. Church members need to be ready to serve when God calls on them. What's interesting about this passage is is that the word the apostles used for serve tables, right? It's not right for us to take away from the preaching of the word to serve tables. It's a version of the word diakoneo, okay? Uh, Which is Greek that transformed into the English word deacon, it means to serve. It means a physical service. Uh, m- many, many commentators call this the, the arise of the diaconate, uh, which means the, the group of deacons. Um, but, but it's actually probably the, probably the story where, where all the other like, biblical writers look back to and go, yeah, you know, that actually probably is a good term. We should just call them deacons. We should call them servants. So don't think of this as the rise of the diaconate. It's probably just, just the, the, the pot that, that that was planted in. And the Greek word for deacon always means servant. It always means physical servant. It's always used in reference to the church's physical needs. And I know that, that certain Baptist circles, ours, have changed the use of this word to mean leader in general. Um, but a deacon really is someone who ensures that things run smoothly when physical needs arise. So let's now look at the apostles' qualifications for these men, right? They gather together. They say, all right, we need some servants. We need some people who are able to serve these tables. We, we can't do it. Um, so in verses 5 to 6, you see some qualifications, right? You got, you got characteristics of these guys. They need to have a good reputation, and they need to be full of the spirit and wisdom. The, a good reputation here means men who are reliable, they're not given to scandal or selfishness. They actually show up when, when, they, when they say they're going to show up. People who would be a good fit for this role, right? They, they would be able to go into this and they'd be able to lead and correct the problem well. They need to be full of the spirit. So they had to be shown or they, they had to have their lives show that the spirit had worked in them, right? Brought repentance and understanding of the truth of the gospel who were mature in the faith. You know, I think it's funny in Christian circles, we have a tendency to highlight the young, but not the mature. The mature have a very important place. People who are young, they just got muscles, man. They they can lift heavy things. How many, how many, how many church chairs can you hold when you go to the next church plant? Right. (laughs) How many chairs can you carry at the same time? That does not denote maturity. Maturity is important because mature leadership means spiritually mature leadership means that the, the Holy Spirit is working in the person and they are then capable by God's actions of leading well. And then that last qualification, wisdom, right? This could be linked with the Spirit's work in the person or that they had maybe gained uh, worldly wisdom in a regard, right? Let's jump to the, 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 the now context, right? Let's say, let's say that you have experience as a bookkeeper and the church is looking for a treasurer and you're like, yeah, eh, eh, I don't want to do it. You might actually, the Lord might have been preparing you for, in wisdom for this role, this is what we see in first Kings three, one through 15, right? The Holy Spirit gives Solomon wisdom. He prays for wisdom. He could have prayed for riches, could have prayed for a big kingdom, could have prayed for, you know, a million donkeys, right? But, but, uh, but he prays for wisdom. And so God grants him that. Or, or if we were to turn to Exodus 31, which I think is one of the most interesting passages of the Bible, right? God's saying you've got to build a tabernacle. And it's as you're reading up to this point, you can almost hear Moses hyperventilating when you're reading it. Because who's going to do this? Moses? Is Moses going to do it? He's already stretched thin. He already had his father-in-law say, dude, raise up some judges among the people. And, and so God says, hey, talk to Bezalel and Aholiab to work on the tabernacle. They've been trained already to do these skills. This is what God does. He raises up people in order to serve without them even necessarily knowing that that's where they were on the path to. That's so cool of God to work in the background in our lives to get us skills that are able to do certain things that we don't even know. How can I use this for the church? Five years later, oh, that's how I can use it for the glory of God and for the good of the church. When needs arise, God's already been working on someone to fix it. And I'll tell you, we, we often switch this up nowadays. We typically expect proficiency and wisdom first, not a good reputation or full of the Spirit. We should value maturity, spiritual maturity, God's work in a person's life, much more and above their craftsmanship for whatever it is now don't get me wrong I'm not saying like well you know we really know that Miguel is super good at, uh, at being a spiritual leader and so therefore uh, Miguel since you're a good spiritual leader I want you to go ahead and re drywall all this <laughs> <laughs> Probably not as forte, he's got back problems. <laughs> so that's not necessarily what I'm saying, but we should, we, should be much, we should be much slower to put in able bodies in a leadership role, but we should be much quicker to evaluate their spiritual maturity. Only when someone's spiritually ready for a task are they also physically ready for the task. And I also want you to notice the importance of the other disciples getting, getting recommendations. It's not just the apostles going, all right, so I know Stephen's good and, uh, and Nicolaus and, 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 and that dude, Prockett something. I can't remember your name. Like that's not what's happening here, right? It's actually the congregation going, yeah, I, I, I know exactly who would be good for this role. And they put forth these names and they they gather and they agree. Again, the church agreeing on anything is a miracle. That's that's the work of God. Visible representation of the Holy Spirit at work. And also, I want to point out, it's not like they selected seven men and they're like, oh, oh, okay, that's enough. We got the holy number. All right. I just want to point this out. There's seven days in a week. There's seven men chosen to serve. Maybe they're connected. Anyway, I was thinking about that this morning because I was like, Lord, why seven? Like, <laughs> was it just was it just for the number? Uh, no, I, I really think I really think they probably had one person per day or maybe they had a schedule so that this could be taken care of. So the, the people, the people recommend these men who, by the way, all have Gentile names. None of them have Hebrew names. So this is God raising up people who are actually within that people group to go take care of that people group under the authority of the apostles so so they they get recommended the church the congregation agrees the the group of disciples, whatever that means, the agrees um and and the apostles confirm it they lay on their they lay their hands on them which is not an extra special empowering, but a show of, of appointment, right? A show of confirmation. And, and then they go about their duties and the church grows. The, verse seven is really important for us because what we see is that the church grows when labor is not all put on the shoulders of one person. The, the church membership needs to be active. I mean, how many how many in the, the, these chairs are missing right now? All good reasons. I'm not guilt- tripping anyone. If I were, I'd be using names. Whelan. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I picked a random name. <laughs> I was going to do Jackie, but I always pick on Jackie, so <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but but the but but the point is. That a church membership needs to be ready, ready to move as God is moving them. Experiencing God is talking about that. But here's a practical example where a need arises in the church and the apostles go, dude, we just stretch too thin. We can't do this. We need, we need people that are, that are spiritually capable and physically capable and, and, and are wise and able to do this. Do you guys know anyone? Hands go up. And then there's no mention of how some guys were like, ah, you know, I'd love to do that, but I really just can't. I don't know why. I don't know if it's miraculously because seven men were proposed and seven men were accepted, or if ten men were proposed and they went through a democratic process. I don't know. But these seven were ready to serve. So... Some, some things to think about here, right? The unified mind among the church here really is what allowed it to continue growing. The, the division of labor made it possible. But division in terms of di- like divisive actions among each other, right, um, that breeds destruction. If that would have happened, if the church, if the apostles would have spread themselves too thin, or if, if there would have been infighting among them, the, the church would have died, But God providentially kept that church going. We need to make sure that we're resolving internal disputes when they arise. Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Have you ever thought about that? How fighting in and among church members is like the bars of a castle. It doesn't let people flow freely between it doesn't let people function well. It just walls up and destroys. So if this situation were left unresolved, Christ's church would be in danger of becoming chained and hindered. But instead, we get an, an, a, a, an example of Psalm one, where the psalmist writes, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Amen? So allowing this dispute, uh, or so solving this dispute quickly, not allowing it to fester and cause an infection in the body of Christ was an act of wisdom. Hearing the need, meeting the need, resolving it. So, uh, some implications and applications, right? Implication number one, deacons were meant to be servants in the church who catered to more physical matters within the congregation. I'm not gonna gonna jump on that. It's it's really not that important, but that's what we see, right? We see, we've seen in Baptist history since the 1950s, kind of this merging of the elder and the deacon role and just kind of putting them together. And then the pastor sits as the elder, Right? But then the pastor inevitably almost becomes like a CEO, or he looks on this verse and, and goes, well, You know what? It's not right that I should uh, stop preaching and, uh, in order to serve tables, which, by the way, is an awful, awful interpretation of this. If you have a pastor that's not willing to serve tables when the need arises, then that pastor needs to be pushed out the door. But if you have a pastor that keeps serving tables, And doesn't preach the word of God, then the congregation needs to come around him and help him. But there's no such thing as a small role in the body of Christ. Whether it's a form of service like administration, like being a secretary or treasurer, or a form of service like gardening or maintenance, or serving by ensuring that people are treated with hospitality when they enter a building or even, even the, the, the service of calling each other to see how each person is doing. Those are all necessary for a church to flourish, and none of them has a small role. While this is not a sermon on the theology of the diaconate, I just like saying diaconate, Uh, (laughs) we need to recognize that roles like this are integral to avoid burning out a pastor and for allowing a church to flourish by the grace of God. Implication number two, both physical and spiritual needs arise in a congregation and the Lord will provide people to meet those needs. I would encourage all of you to avoid resisting the Lord as he moves you to a particular role in the congregation. And I would generally like to warn all people to avoid resisting the Lord, period. Uh, <laughs> but, but very specifically, if, if there's a need that arises that you're like, I would fit that. Don't go, but. God is always training us behind the scenes, constantly, individually, purposefully. And if I can take a stab at the typical Southern Baptist church member roster here with this statement, uh, there are very few reasons that someone should be called an inactive church member. And all of them involve providential hindrance. Someone not being capable of getting to church. That's a good reason. Someone going to college in another city Uh, That's far away. That's a good reason to be on the inactive member roles. But what I'm talking about here is that inactive member who's been an inactive member for 12 years and uh, and really they're going to another church because they like its style, but not not that style that we are. So I just want to take that stab. There was a there was the big thing in Baptist church history within the last 10 years where churches started purging member rosters. And it, it like, basically, it was like, if the person's dead, they shouldn't be on the list. Okay? So if you're sending in your annual church profile and it says you have uh, 800 members and 750 of them are dead... clear those out. (laughs) And then also the other qualification was they, they need to be regular attenders. They need to be coming not every single week, but they need to be people that people recognize. We've all been to churches where someone walks in and only one person, in the congregation recognizes their face. That person needs more gospel, uh, less, less, all right, I don't mean this for here, but, but just, just listen to my statement and realize what I mean. That person needs more gospel, less voting rights. <laughs> All right, if, if you know, you know. <laughs> if you take offense, please don't take offense. But our, our one application for today, honestly, is use your God-given gifts for his glory in the church, for its well-being and health. How has the Lord been training you? How has the Lord been been setting you up to be able to serve well? How, How has the Lord been working in you so that you don't have to be an inactive church member, but you're a face that we see? Gosh, I'll tell you, one of my favorite things to do is to stand at that door and hand out bulletins on Sunday mornings. Usually I'm chasing children and I don't really get an opportunity to do that. But... That's one of my favorite things because I love seeing your faces. I love saying hi. I love not having to go. Oh, there's that person that I have to go greet and go chase them down. And then I'm about to interrupt a conversation to say hi. I love saying hello. The Lord has built in me a love for hospitality. That's just what I love. Now, does that mean I have to serve at the door every week? No, but it, it might mean that the Lord has set me up for something good for that. The Lord has also trained me to not always break computers. So that's another gift that the Lord has given me that I get to exercise uh, and grow in. But friends, the Lord has set you all up for a purpose. He set you all up for a reason to be in this congregation if, if there's a way that, that we can relieve pressure, and I can say this because I'm not the lead pastor. If there's a way that we can relieve pressure from our pastor by serving, by deaconizing. Ah, gosh, that sounds awful in the English. If, <laughs> if there's a way that we can relieve pressure from our pastor by serving, maybe, maybe that's how the Lord has set it up for us. Maybe we need to not resist but humbly accept that. It's not a, I don't want to use the word surrender, but humbly accept that, you know what, God? Let's see. Let's see how this works out. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that we are all here. I thank you that we're here to celebrate uh, the salvation that you bring us. I thank you, God, that every single one of us is precious in your sight. Though in reality, Lord, I am not always what I would deem as precious. (laughs) Um, I have a purpose. I have a way to serve. I have a way to glorify you. We all need that. And I pray, God, that you would give give us recognition, wisdom of how we can do that to your glory, how we can serve, God, I thank you that you raised up these men in this text to make sure that the injustice was resolved. I thank you that they're they're culturally linked with these other widows, that they may have a more tender heart towards them. However you set it up, God, we get to see this as an example of how you work in us today. So God, work in us. Show us where we may serve. Show us where we may glorify you. And give us, uh, give us the, the the strength to not resist. In Jesus' name, Amen.